Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and who today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And are you ready to laugh? Because we're talking about America's funny man, Mel Brooks. That's right. You look up the word comedy in the dictionary, and you will find a photo of this man's smiling face. And I want to begin by asking you a question, Justin. Are you a fan of Mel Brooks slash do you like Mel Brooks? We did an episode on Spaceballs on Patreon many years ago, and I believe we kind of discussed it there and that when I was a teenager and getting into movies, I think I watched every like available Mel Brooks film. So I watch Young Frankenstein. I watch The Producers. I watch Blazing Saddles. I rewatched Spaceballs because I loved it so much. Dracula Dead and Loving It. Uh, could not get enough of it. But was I a fan of Mel Brooks? I appreciate him as a comedian and what he did. But I don't think I am using any of his films like comfort food or go-to comedy things. How about you? Well, when I was a kid, which is when my relationship with Mel Brooks started and basically ended as well, uh, I loved Spaceballs. Like any child, uh, any child born after 1977, I loved Spaceballs. Mm -hmm. uh, saw it countless times, quoted it incessantly on the playground. So much. I did plays at like the Boy Scouts that I attended during the summer. They just incorporated and stole jokes from Spaceballs. And I do think you kind of have to hand it to him. I mean, Spaceballs remains the definitive Star Wars parody film. Mm -hmm. Not satire, but parody film. Mm -hmm. It's got everything. It's got all the jokes. If you want an encyclopedia of low-hanging Star Wars jokes, that movie has it all. Yeah, you get out of here, Hardware Wars. So, I mean, as a kid, I certainly also watched as many Mel Brooks movies as I could. Young Frankenstein. I, I remember when I was maybe 10 or 11, literally buying Blazing Saddles on DVD, which was a new medium at the time. Yep, it had that snapper case. My friend had it, and we watched it at his house. That's correct. And I remember my dad hyping it up as, oh, get ready for one of the funniest movies ever made. My dad said the same thing and he's like man there's this scene where a bunch of cowboys are around a campfire so funny i had heard about that campfire scene for years and years before that not to spoil things a little bit but that campfire scene is funny it also is kind of half-assed it's just one shot pulling out from a campfire and a bunch of cowboys are farting to the point that i was staring at it and being like did they do this in post yeah like just add more farts i mean you would think that the joke would develop somewhere but no and you can't argue with the fact that in 1970 74 or 5 that scene rocked audiences everywhere they fucking that scene was a nuclear bomb in comedy for kids and teenagers that's who loved it because critics i guess they were too stodgy to get mel brooks's this uh not young man's cutting edge humor i remember gearing up to watch blazing saddles i think i'd actually already seen the producers by that point and i thought that was very funny and blazing saddles I had the same reaction to it then that I have to it now, and I felt that I had failed it in some way. I thought, yeah, this is funny. There are funny jokes all the way through this. There are laughs. And yet, why am I not responding to this like it's that nuclear blast of comedy that every boomer said it was? Watching Mel Brooks's films, I have this thought every single time, which is there's not enough jokes in this movie. Now, is this because we're part of the ADHD generation and we just expect joke after joke after joke? Perhaps I would counter argument that Mel Brooks in his movies is just doing old vaudeville skits. He would not, you know, deny that. 
And you just expect more in these kind of like structures. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the Zucker brothers came along a couple of years later and really took the Mel Brooks formula and kicked it into a higher gear. With Airplane, the jokes come faster and the scenes are denser with jokes. There are jokes in the foreground and in the background. But I mean, it's not like Mel Brooks was necessarily the state of the art in terms of no. joke density. As you as you pointed out to me, you look at the Marx Brothers, look at Hell's a Poppin', heck, look at frickin' Wheeler and Woolsey, who I would not call as funny as Mel Brooks. But, but Wheeler like, and Woolsey, the joke density in their films is huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Three Stooges, the joke density is big there. I would say, like, frankly, the Jerry Lewis movies, some of them, like, the joke density is higher than Mel Brooks. But with the, a movie like Blazing Saddles, there are the jokes kind of come in and they come out. And then there's another joke and then there's another joke. And... It depends, it rises and falls on, is each joke really funny? And I think they vary very wildly in that movie. Like Blazing Saddles, like what are the killer jokes in that film? The ones that they build up to this joke and like everybody remembers it. The farting cowboys, of course. Uh, The guy who, you know, the big tough guy who punches the horse and the horse falls over. Really funny. But that scene in Blazing Saddles, like that Mongo scene, I think it's the perfect example of like, sometimes Mel Brooks' structure, I'm like, that's it? Because like, Mongo gets this huge buildup and then there's a Bugs Bunny joke that's kind of half-ass, and that's it for that character. I'm not going to argue with people who say that they actually do watch that movie or other Mel Brooks movies as comfort food, because of course. a lot of people do. Yeah. A, lo- a lot of people watch these movies over and over and over again. I have found, at least in my old age, Mel Brooks movies are resistant to reviewing, because with him, once you see the joke... You know, like there were a lot of times watching some of these movies this week where I thought, oh, yeah, I remember this joke. Now I'm watching it again. Now, I I had a lot of opportunity to think about Monty Python in comparison to Mel Brooks this week. And I think certain of the Monty Python routines you can listen to and re-listen to as if they're music. Mm. They're like rhythmic, you know, something like the Dead Parrot sketch or the Argument Clinic. It introduces a insane premise and then builds it and builds it and builds it. And so there's a sort of tension, there's an escalation, and as well as the way that the language is and the way the two performers, the way Cleese and Palin interact, there's a back and forth, a rat-a-tat that once, even once the joke is no longer that funny to you, there are other pleasurable things. But even on the written page, with like, you know, pushing the performers aside, those Monty Python bits, I have hard evidence as a nerd reading them endlessly in those giant books that were published. And they still worked, and I still found them funny. If I was reading the script for Blazing Saddles, and it just said, Cowboys Fart... I don't know if I would be laughing. So is it because it's like different forms of comedy, the more anarchic style of Monty Python versus the not, you know, button down, but classical approach of someone like Mel Brooks? Well, I also think Mel Brooks was at his best when he had other strong collaborators. Gene Wilder. Yeah, Gene Wilder. So I just watched History of the World Part One, which is a movie that I never made it more than 10 minutes through, even when I was a kid. And on this viewing, I was like, fuck, going to try to make it to the end. I vividly remember one funny joke from that movie, and it's Mel Brooks as Moses going, I have 15, and then he drops one of them. Whoops, 10 commandments. That's a funny joke. Correct. That's a very funny joke, and it's the only funny joke. (laughs) It's the first joke pretty much of the movie. That movie, oh my God. Again, apologies to any History of the World Part 1 fans listening. If you love it, that's great. People who were children when it played endlessly in syndication. Yeah, I mean, that's the only explanation, because I think it's just one 
awful, awful joke after another. But on top of that, like the Monty Python movies and History of the World Part One is very clearly influenced by the Monty Python movies, right? Like it's two years after Mm -hmm. Life of Brian. That's what he's going for. But the Monty Python movies are by six people who have very different sensibilities. Their sensibilities are sometimes in conflict. And you're only getting the best of what all of them have to offer. And something like Life of Brian or Holy Grail, the jokes are funny, but then also they have this really pungent atmosphere that keeps you going along. They have that Terry Gilliam visual sense. They also have Graham Chapman as the lead actor, who's like this very strong, like central pillar around which everything revolves. Now, then you take History of the World Part One, and it's basically what if Monty Python was only written by Eric Idle? <laughs> Oh, man. Hope he doesn't hear this. He's going to bring us to the courts, Will. It's spam a lot, basically. There's no sense of atmosphere. There's no sense of, like, place. There's no central idea the way that Life of Brian has certain things that it's saying, you know, certain structuring ideas. There's no central um, main pillar. I mean, aside from the fact that Mel Brooks plays a couple different roles, it's just just joke, 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 and all of them are bad. (laughs) Young Frankenstein... One of the reasons why that's one of his most enduring movies is the atmosphere is really strong. He really gets that universal horror style. And also, Gene Wilder is so fucking good in the middle of that movie. I think that Young Frankenstein is his best movie, in my opinion. And it all comes down to Gene Wilder, who was the kind of creative force on this movie. That he was almost pushing Mel Brooks in certain directions, saying stuff like, Mel, you're not allowed to act in this movie, because it would throw it off if you are in it. And just the way that it looks... And the cinematographer of the movie is just some journeyman who shot like Robert Krause's uh, The Ultimate Warrior. But because that universal feel, it's so much all in their bones that Mel Brooks went and got the production designer of the original Frankenstein and got all the props on set that you can take stills from that frame and you wouldn't know that's a comedy. And I think that's very important with the kind of movies that Mel Brooks is trying to make. What do you need to know biographically about Mel Brooks? Everyone's already heard it. He wrote for your show of shows. For Sid Caesar. Have you ever watched any of the Sid Caesar show of shows? Yeah, a little bit of it, but I haven't done like a deep dive the way, you Mm -hmm. know, I would like to. I mean, people swear by it. Obviously, it was this incubator for a whole generation like Woody Allen wrote for it. I think did Neil Simon write for it as well? Yep, he did as well. Yeah, a a ton of other people like that. Mel Brooks was a comedy writer for many years, but only uh, rather late in life, I think well into his 40s, did he become a film auteur with 1967's The Producers. Have you seen The Critic, the short that he made that won an Oscar? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny, but again, it's it, it doesn't really build to anything. It's like, this is the joke, which is there's like an experimental film playing, shapes jumping around on screen, and Mel Brooks is like, what is this? What is this supposed to be? I don't know what this is. Yeah, proto-mystery science theater. Mm -hmm. I can see, though, watching these movies, why Mel Brooks really popped at the time that he did. Like, 1959 was the year that Time magazine published this article called The Sicknicks, which was about this new breed of comedian, you know, comedians who are dealing in taboo subject matter, you know, people like Mort Saul and Nichols and May, and of course... Lenny Bruce! That's right. Now, Lenny Bruce spends the first half of the 1960s, you know, saying the word cock on stage and being hounded to his death by police for it. You know, he died in 66. 
In 68, the Hayes Code, which were the old censorship rules, that was disbanded and replaced by the rating system, GPGR. To say nothing about, uh, you know, to be armchair sociologist for a sec, to say nothing about all the cultural upheavals that were happening at the time, you know, the Vietnam War, race relations, the sexual revolution, etc., etc. Okay, now in the middle of all this, you got Mel Brooks, who is the perfect comedian to bridge the generation gap. Like, he's both Borscht Belt and Lenny Bruce, but like a softer Lenny Bruce. Yeah, but not too offensive. So it feels kind of like, oh, he's puncturing these things that we know, but not in a way that would anger anyone, unless you find it too crass. Yeah. So what is The Producers about? The Producers is about a accountant, played by Gene Wilder, and a Broadway producer, played by Zero Mustel, who decide to put on a play that will be the worst play ever, because... If they do it, they can oversell. And if it fails, no one expects to get their money back, but they get all the profit from, you know, selling 50% to this person, 50% to that person, 100% to this person. So they just have to do a bad play. Now, saying that premise, I think would lead one to expect a different movie than you get. Because, like, the producers can be very clearly split into, like, three acts. Number one, which is my favorite, is just basically a play of Zero Mustel and Gene Wilder yelling at each other for 25 minutes in one location. Yeah, I did think that opening office scene was extremely funny. And it's funny because the two actors really take it seriously. Like, like Zero Mustel obviously plays at, at 11 from the beginning of the movie. Gene Wilder is the perfect counterpoint to him because his on-screen affect modulates so greatly throughout like he comes on screen like as a sort of like yeah proto woody allen character really like nebbishy and quiet but then yeah like he'll have these panic attacks and these fits where he's just like screaming in rage you know there's something about gene wilder the fact that he could hit both those registers and feel uh, completely authentic in both of them without any sense of ironic distance, which you don't get in the later Mel Brooks movies. And I think that this early sequence, because it is basically uh, structured like a play, just two actors off of each other, has a rhythm that I find that something like Blazing uh, Saddle struggles with. Because in the producers, like it's them kind of defining it. Mel Brooks is directing and guiding them, but they are the ones that are leading it. And when Mel Brooks has the issue of having to have scenes follow each other, you can get kind of a ramshackle feeling to it all. And even the producers, I find that like the second act, when they're going to go pick all the people, uh, a lot of, you know, emphasis is put on, man, isn't this guy gay? That's why this is funny. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of gay stuff in this. Spring time for Hitler, though. Very funny. Yeah, very funny. I don't know. I like I thought there was funny stuff all the way through this movie. You know, for a movie that I already knew every joke because I've I've seen it before, mm-hmm. I was still enjoying it. And I think a lot of that has to do with well, yeah, it's the jokes are funny, but a lot of it is a testament to the quality of the performances, including like Dick Sean as LSD, the hippie guy, the the drug. He's very he's funny. very funny and like a kind of like lame on paper role. I think Kenneth Mars is the Nazi playwright. <laughs> also very funny. I remember seeing it as a kid, though, and feeling like, oh, man, this movie really runs out of steam at the end. I guess they're going to jail. Yep, that's it. <laughs> the end. See you later. Didn't think the courtroom scene was funny at the end. I did like Gene Wilder's speech at the end. I did find that very funny. It is a movie that I'm so surprised, like how much of a success 
success it had. That people were like, yes, yes, the producer, we cannot get enough of this. Well, it was not a huge box office success, but he did win the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. But then 1974, and I realize we're skipping over the 12 chairs, but 1974 is this insane year where he has Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, basically like number two and three at the box office that year or something like that. And the old story goes that Young Frankenstein, it came out the same year because it was something that Mel Brooks was pretty much pressured into doing by Gene Wilder for Gene Wilder doing him a favor and stepping into a role on Blazing Saddles. Now, Blazing Saddles, just to return to that movie for a second, I do think a lot of it is still funny. There are funny jokes all the way through. I always think of the joke where Gene Wilder is like, I'm the fastest gun in the West. See this hand steady as a rock. Too bad I shoot with this hand. <laughs> Just shaking in the air. That's a funny joke. Yeah, there, there are funny jokes all the way through. But boy, when you start that movie, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, when are we going to get to the funny stuff? I think I think the movie really kicks into gear when there's that song about like the Western town. Uh, 13 minutes in, and they should cut everything before that, because it's just like joke after joke after joke, and it feels like an introductory piece of like, this is the movie you're about to watch. Speaking to how important context is for comedy, I do think that the boomers who watch this in first run, they've spent their entire childhoods watching nothing but Westerns. And they were stoned, obviously. <laughs> so everything seemed funnier. So yeah, so they were able to drift in the arid stretches between the funny jokes. But you know, generation after generation had just been watching like there was a period when like 90% of movies are westerns, and then there's a period where 90% of TV are westerns. And then, you know, it's that period when the revisionist western is a thing. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a million other movies like that. Something is in the air about the western as this foundational American myth that has to be interrogated. And here comes this movie. What's wild about this, though, is that, like, Italy had been cranking them out for, like, four years before then. Like, just endless comedy westerns it killed the spaghetti western with the trinity series starring terrence hill so it's not like they weren't comedy westerns and there were comedy westerns done all over hollywood as well but i guess not in this particular mad magazine style well also this movie has the race element to it the fact that it's a black sheriff and we can't underestimate the importance or, or the the charge that that carried for the audience in 1974 but even then like fred williamson was starring in a bunch of spaghetti westerns i mean his most famous famous one boss blank word came out in 1974 yeah i mean I, he must have felt pretty overshadowed by this then i mean what can you say mel brooks he was just the right guy at the right time the person who was the perfect generation gap figure who had his finger on the pulse of exactly how far like this movie is re remembered as this incredible taboo breaking artifact but like it isn't really it's, they say the n-word throughout they say the n-word throughout and he figured out a way to make audiences laugh at that and he figured out a way to make it cathartic for people all over the political divide and mm -hmm. uh that was that was an impressive talent that he had for a little while yeah not too zany because that would scare off some people like like the politics of the movie are not like it's hard to imagine you know, anybody coming away from the movie being offended by the politics of it, actually. They'd be like, ha, 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 that's good. And then they go and, you know, talk and think the way that they always do. But nevertheless, I mean, the box office of the movie speaks for itself. This movie primally hit America at that time in a way that I don't think 
like people still find this movie funny, but I think I really do think you had to be there to quite grasp what this movie. And you meant. couldn't make Blazing Saddles today, right? Will? Well, no, you couldn't because like you wouldn't. It wouldn't mean the same thing if you made this movie today. It would be <laughs> yeah. I have a little film for you called A Thousand Ways to Die in the West, written, directed, <laughs> starring Seth MacFarlane. Well, I guess you could make it that. Also, Young Frankenstein came out same year, 1974. Now this is a movie for us, Will, as Universal monster heads. I mean, I love Young Frankenstein. That's the one. That's probably the only one I would take with me to the next life, frankly. It is a movie, again, every time I watch it, I'm like, man, they really, uh, Mel Brooks is building us up to the jokes, if you will. Yeah, and that's the thing. The jokes are good in that movie, but I like it as much for, I like it as much as a, as a continuation of the universal horror cycle, and I like Gene Wilder's performance. Those are- Oh, Gene Wilder's performance is great. Also, I do think, like, the jokes when they come, I mean, that blind man scene with Gene Hackman is- Well, that is some, like, it, it is very funny, but this time watching it, I was like, this is just Abbott and Costello shit. Yeah, but I mean, that scene has a level of discipline like a level of build that you don't often see in Mel Brooks. It's rare that he allows himself to just build on a joke and just like let a scene kind of live in it. Just joke, joke, joke. I assume in his mind he's building to a joke that if you play it straight and then you puncture it with a joke, that joke will be funnier. But watching it now, it's like, well, we just want the jokes. Where are the jokes? I don't know. After that, it's a long, uh, rapid decline, I would say. Don't you think? Well, he got to make silent movie. Uh, you know, um, I watch it and I was happy that he got to have some fun with his friends is what I'll say. Silent movie. So I haven't seen that one in a while, but I think you'd agree that most, you know, the actual silent comedy classics that you've heard of are better. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like something you'd make in your backyard with your friends after seeing some silent movies. The fact that Mel Brooks was able to get like James Caan, Paul Newman, Liza Minnelli to show up in cameos, all, you know, all the best for him. He got to make a movie with Marty Feldman, himself starring, and Dom DeLuise, all the power to him. That is like a blank check power move. And I feel like after this, and I'm sure there will be fans who would disagree with this, but after this, that's uh, kind of kind of the end of Mel Brooks as a really vital force. Spaceballs? Well, Spaceballs? You know, okay, I guess you can't really argue with Spaceballs because that movie, people love it. I will always be haunted by that screening that I saw at Peter Kaplowski's birthday that was the work print, and it's like, this is death. <laughs> Every joke is just like hanging on the vine. <laughs> well, that's why you should watch the finished film. Never show anyone your work prints. But listen, John Hurt falling over, alien popping out of his chest, doing a little dance. That's Listen, funny. I actually don't want to downplay Spaceballs because as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking of all the really funny jokes that still make me laugh. Like Ludicrous Speed or uh, when they rent Spaceballs and watch it. Anything with Rick Moranis, I think, is the height of Spaceballs. I completely agree. He's really funny. The scene where he's playing with his action figures... No, I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. I mean... <laughs> All right. You know what? Let's just call it. Aha! You fell for the oldest trick in the book! For me, it goes Young Frankenstein, The Producers, Spaceballs, mm -hmm. and then you can keep the rest. You I know think. what? I'm going to go Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, Ooh. Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I know you just watched. Maybe I'm just saying that as a transitional point. Let's talk about Dracula Dead and Loving It, because Dracula Dead and Loving It is his swan song, his final directorial effort. Have you seen Robin Hood Men in Tights? Yeah, I have. I don't like it. Okay. Do you like it? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety. I saw it once, but Dracula Dead and Loving It I've now seen twice, and I do feel a bit of affection for this movie. I mean... So this one came out in 1995. He is uh, following 
desperately the Zucker Abraham Zucker wave by casting Leslie Nielsen as Dracula in a pretty straightforward uh, adaptation of Dracula with jokes. Well, specifically Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, because that's what they're doing scenes of throughout. Although I also think it like follows the template of the Lugosi movie pretty, pretty closely as well. Mm -hmm. Now you saw this one within the last year as well, right? Yeah, I showed it at one of those 24 hour marathons I did at like hour 21 or something which is like the perfect time to watch this movie so how did it hold up for you i remember laughing uh, every now and then mel brooks like is trying to do the zuckers and the zuckers were just doing mel brooks but he can't really get to that level of zaniness i mean what can i say about dracula dead and loving it except that it's hilarious it's it's kind of slow and most of the jokes are not very good However, I feel a certain affection for it because you've got Leslie Nielsen giving it us all as Dracula. And it has, I was surprised to, to read in Patrick McGilligan's biography that it costs $30 million. It does not look like $30 million. If you told me that it costs $20,000, I would say sure. I mean, it's so cheap looking and it has an almost like panto play quality to it. It just feels so ramshackle and the jokes are like such groaners. It's such dad humor that you know you can't really hate it i mean mel brooks complained at the time that he thought the movie was uh, hurt by leslie nielsen trying to be funny and to that i say i disagree mr uh, brooks i'll tell you one of the few times i laughed which was in leslie nielsen's death scene spoiler uh when he's the when he's changed into a vampire bat and the light hits him leslie nielsen does some of the most ferocious mugging i've ever seen a man do <laughs> yeah and what can I say? I laughed. I was also impressed with how we got Bella Lugosi's speech patterns so close. Always remember the scene where I think it's Steven Weber cuts his finger and he's like, oh boy, we got a, got some blood going here. And Leslie Nielsen is just staring at him, like licking his lips, just mugging up a store. That's a great scene because it doesn't actually lead to a joke. But here's the thing about comedians. You know, oftentimes they only have a few good years. It's hard to stay on the zeitgeist. And I mean, Mel Brooks, like you said, started directing stuff like in his 40s. And for a few years, his sense of humor absolutely coincided with the zeitgeist he was absolutely able to channel something in the air and it's hard to do that forever you lose your fastball you lose sight of exactly where the zeitgeist is I think he's always, as a guy, as a talk show guest. Well, I think he's hilarious. I actually watched some clips, like as a storyteller, as a presence. He is like ratatat, because that's where, you know, he cut his teeth doing that kind of comedy. And I really feel like that's kind of where his reputation lies, even more than his movies. People just like him. I like him, you know? If he's on TV, I enjoy seeing him talk. Do the 2,000-pound man bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, young Frankenstein, so scary. And now he's, what, 96? 97 years old and, and everybody he knows is dead and he wishes he could just go off this mortal coil but instead he has his name on a big new disney plus show that nobody likes so continuing the trend of you know the unfunniness of the history of the world brand well history of the world part two it's called and i've seen some three-star reviews out there some very generous three-star reviews i think it's nice to be you know kind to grandpa at the old folks home i don't think he had much to do with it though right he probably just put his name and showed up in a few cameos well he's got a writing credit on all the episodes so wow well you know best of luck to mel he looks uh, sharper than any other 96 year old i've ever seen i wonder if he's so sharp because all of his jokes have been like burned into his brain because he's done them so many times so in conclusion wokeness has destroyed comedy and we can no longer <laughs> make blazing saddles again 
uh, anymore. I, I'm sure that's the conclusion we've reached, right? I would bet you money that when Mel Brooks passes away in five years of the Blazing Saddles remake. Oh, for sure. I'm surprised they haven't done it yet. So, Justin, having put Mel Brooks to bed for a much, much needed rest because he's an old man, uh, needs his nap. Uh, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. Our first letter uh, goes black exploitation and liberal guilt. I, this this sounds too heavy for us. I don't know. I'm inspired by the way you break the distinction between high and low art. I found myself embracing my love for trash cinema. This is something we get a lot. And is it that novel that we just talk about everything? I guess it must be. I don't know. It's strange. Like, don't people like everything? Like people are always telling us like, I love how you can talk about high and low art on your podcast. And I'm like, we're just talking about the stuff that we like or the stuff that we want to like, you know, experience or watch. Listen, if it if it helps people, I'm glad. But I'm completely with you, Justin. It doesn't seem revolutionary to me at all. I'm trying to think, is there any other podcast that do that kind of stuff? Probably not in the same format that we do, but that's why we're doing a month dedicated to Stanley Kubrick. We need those li- those clicks. Ah, Stanley Kubrick. Yes. And the letter continues. Most recently, that's meant finally catching up on black exploitation. I viewed them as mostly action movies made by and for a black audience until your episode on Gordon Parks reminded me that most of these movies were in fact made by white filmmakers and Shaft was written by a white man. And therefore you felt you had permission to watch them, right? <laughs> in that episode, Will says that he was uncomfortable slightly with the genre since it mostly has a white audience these days as a white liberal myself this caught me off guard and caused me to reevaluate how i see these movies seeing as that episode was half a decade ago sorry for the reminder i'm wondering if your perspective on the subgenre has evolved since then thanks for helping me seem smart to my normie friends ian wow that's interesting i mean you make these comments on podcasts five years ago and they just kind of live on and can even cause somebody to reevaluate their relationship with a genre huh that's interesting like has it evolved our opinion of it i think our 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 opinion is probably the same because it continues to be yeah i i think it's probably the same too i mean i like black exploitation movies i think i remember i think at the time i said that there were certain black exploitation movies that i'd gone to see at repertory cinemas black belt jones was one that i think we both saw together Mm. i remember going to see cotton comes to harlem I don't know. They were just playing in Toronto at the time. And I was very struck by how white the audience seemed to be at those. Maybe I was somewhat uncomfortable with a sort of like white appropriation of the genre at the time. As we did an episode on the podcast, you know two white guys talking about that which i think we said multiple times in the episode as well i think it's good to explore everything i think uh black exploitation there's a there are a ton of great and interesting black exploitation movies and i think i think nobody benefits from like shutting themselves off to genres or movements or national cinemas or you know certain genres that are maybe primarily aimed at certain groups i don't think anybody benefits from shutting themselves off from those experiences because for reasons that are self-explanatory. And I think that even since that episode came out that like more popular or available like blu-ray labels have done kind of like box sets or centralized stuff on these things that have always existed but are now more easily accessible than they ever have been like you could go and watch a sweet sweetback's badass song in the box set that criterion put out of a bunch of melvin van people's movie so like if you can watch those and those are direct from the source in fact there was also a netflix biopic of rudy ray moore in the years since that episode happened i mean Mm -hmm. a lot has changed a lot has happened Um, well you know that biography that finally came out that the guy's been writing for years in the introduction of that biography he goes listen i know i've been you know writing this for a long time one of the reasons that i haven't published it is that i'm going to discuss that rudy ray moore was gay because that was a very 
you know, important part of his identity, but nobody ever talks about it because it could like shatter the image that he was trying to put out there. That's something that the Eddie Murphy movie doesn't reckon with at all. But anyway, whatever misgivings I had about the sort of white following around black exploitation movies, um, I think we can safely put that aside. Oh, you can still have a problem with it and still enjoy the movies, just being aware of the kind of context of their creation. Yeah, I mean, yes, I'm, I am very interested in, in the reception of movies still, but I would not suggest shutting yourself off to any avenues of interest. So thank you very much for that letter. And our next one is from uh, Dave Bertrand, who I know in person because he does screenings in Toronto, mostly like music oriented films with his Stompbox series. And he has to say, I was going for a jog this morning and listening to the Chuck Norris episode of the Important Cinema Club, as you do, and was thinking about your note of how much better Norris's films would be if they would just cut all of his dialogue and do more ass kicking. So, funny anecdote, I spent about two years working for a subtitling company creating closed captions for films and TV, mostly things being dumped on Netflix circa 2012 to 2013. Ah, the golden years of streaming. Of all the films I did at that time, by far the movie was the least amount of captions and therefore least amount of dialogue was missing in action which had about half the usual numbers of captions you'd see in a feature film of that length and the captions that were there about 50 percent of them were machine gun firing screaming screaming in vietnamese the entire plot of the movie is actually laid out by an off-camera adr tv news report while the camera looms on norris's expressionless face This got me wondering, what are some of the best examples you can think of of filmmakers who wisely knew what they'd get out of a particular not-so-skilled actor, so they shut them up and made something amazing out of their silence? Not counting silent films, of course. Thanks again for all the hours of your wonderful podcast. Signing up to Patreon and overdosing an ICC was genuinely one of the great gifts that got me through the pandemic days. All the best, David. Oh, well, thanks, Dave. Well, I mean, for me, the definitive example, and he's not a bad actor, I don't think, but he's definitely a minimalist actor, an iconically minimalist actor, and iconically less is more actor would be Mr. Clint Eastwood in the three spaghetti westerns that launched him to global global superstardom, uh, fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, isn't that the quintessential example of a director who understood that less is more? Oh, absolutely. You know, the old legend of, oh, I went through the script, cut out all the dialogue because it would work better. I do think that the issue with Chuck Norris, even something like Missing in Action, is that he's not doing enough where it's like, listen, you kick butt, kick more butt, man, whether you're talking or not. I just don't think Chuck Norris has it, frankly. I don't think he has the charisma. You know, someone that's really fun that they continually made more and more silent throughout his films because that was expected of him is Charles Bronson. If you see him in some of his early roles or even when he does comedy, he is very expressive. He's fun. He has like charisma to himself. But the second he got into that death wish, they were like, okay, be silent. Don't say anything. This is what we want from you, which wasn't exactly playing to his strengths. I mean, I know that he has a reputation as being the strong, silent guy, but he definitely got pretty pretty lazy as a screen presence towards the end. There's a thin line between like quiet and lazy. It's the Steven Seagal parallel, if you will. I think the quintessential art film example is Lee Kang Sheng, the star of all of Siming Lang's films. I think Simon Lang found him. What's the famous story? He found him in like a, an arcade when he was just a yeah, that's right, just a street youth or something, just an urchin. And then Simon Lang spent decades lusting after this man, unreciprocated it seems, as documented in what is that interview film that he did? Afternoon, mm-hmm. which makes for interesting viewing. So our next letter is from Jordan, and it goes. 
Hello to the Important Cinema Club. I am writing to ask you if you'd ever consider doing an episode on Zhang Yimou. His career is long and pretty clearly delineated between his early fifth generation dramas, which are often quite layered and full of subtext, or just plain text that criticizes or at least offers a complex depiction of the rigid class structures and quality of life offered by contemporary China, and his current career of basically exclusively making jingoistic wuxia epics. I just think it's interesting and kind of sad. Love the show. I also keep seeing Will Sloan walking around in the annex, but I've never said hello. Keep walking and keep making good podcasts, and I can't wait for Rumble in the Bronx. Best, Jordan. That probably was me walking in the annex. Yeah, there's eyes everywhere watching you at all times, Will, so be on your best behavior. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Should we talk about what we're doing next week? Yeah, next week we're doing... Zhang Yimou! No, it's true. And completely unrelated to the letter writer, we had this planned out for a few weeks, but there's Zhang Yimou fever in the air because he has a brand new movie out, one of his uh, jingoistic propaganda epics. But I completely agree with the uh, letter writer that Zhang Yimou has a very fascinating career from the early, I don't know if dissident is the correct term, but complex political films uh, that he made to, um, yeah, some of the... Some of the dodgier ones he's made more recently. I think you could probably break his career and, you know, I'm preempting the episode uh, into like almost three major periods, which was like his early dramas. And then he did some comedies. He was kind of all over the place. And then Hero changed it all for him where they're like, ah, 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 ah. now you're going to be making more entertainment blockbusters for us. I think it's difficult to be a filmmaker anywhere. I think uh, China has its own difficulties and he has navigated that system in ways that are probably disappointing to fans of his early films. Looking at his filmography, you can sense, though, that he's trying a two-for-them, one-for-him policy as he makes them. Completely. He'll make Curse of the Golden Flower and a couple of those, and then he'll make Coming Home or one of those. Mm. And it's an interesting career. I I wish it was I wish it was a spotless career. I mean, no filmmaker can have a spotless career. That that's an impossible ask on them, especially one where governmental bodies are probably putting notes under your door that are saying stuff like "make this or else." Yeah, and I mean stuff like the Great Wall. Oh boy, stinky! Unbecoming of a filmmaker as talented as Zhang Yimou, but nevertheless. I'm interested in exploring him more. Uh, I really enjoyed his film One Second that came out in 2020 about uh, a projectionist. Did you see that one? No, I haven't. I would recommend watching it for the episode that we're going to do. This is also a filmmaker with a like massive filmography. So we're going to have to like pick and choose a little specifically about what we talk about. I would be interested in watching One Second and then we'll probably try to go see the new one that's out right now as well. Absolutely. And I haven't actually seen that many of his early films. So I will be watching some of those. I saw a bunch of those when I was younger. Maybe we should watch Raise the Red Lantern at least, right? That's a big, like, classic one. And I haven't seen Hero probably since it came out, when it was common, omnipresent for a while. Wasn't it like Samuel Jackson presents Hero or something like that? No, you're thinking of the Grandmaster. Hero is <laughs> oh, a Quentin right. Tarantino presentation. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our new patrons, who include Alex Boone, Harper High, and Robert Adams. We could not keep doing this without you. I was recently visiting my in-laws in Vancouver, and in the small town that they live in, they pointed out, oh, there's a video store there. And I was like, there's a video store? And I expected, you know, just like a tiny little nothing. Nope. 
it was a gigantic video store that had been open for 30 years, according to the person behind the cash. And what they figured out, the magic way to stay open, is they turned it into a video game store as well. So they could have like retro video game stuff, sell old games. Because like GameStop is also like disappearing. And it was like gigantic. And they had all this stuff. They still did rentals. They sell vinyls. It was amazing. But when I walked in there, I beelined right for the used DVDs. Didn't even glance at the Blu-rays. Have you reached that point yet in your kind of like used bin going? We mentioned in the letter section that if you saw Will in the annex, he's only going to one place. It's BMV because he wants to go through those used things that have recently been released. Uh, Justin is correct on that. I don't typically go for the blue, for the DVDs. I typically go for the Blu-rays. Really? The more I think about it, I mean, you're right. The DVDs, those are the things that have the content, quote unquote, that you can't get anywhere else. 100%. I'm always surprised when I go to the DVDs of seeing stuff and going, oh, I want to watch this. And this has never been released on Blu-ray and probably never will because nobody cares. DVD was also a medium that it was so popular. There were so many and it was cost effective to just do it. So you get like tons of really weird stuff that got out into the world just because everybody was doing it. And that's not 100% the case with Blu-ray. We live in the collector's market now, but the reality is all those collector's stuff, like if I don't have them, I probably did not want them that badly (laughs) because when it became popular, I was in a more financially stable place than when DVD was at its height. So I'll tell you some old DVDs, some long out of print DVDs that I got recently that I feel very good about. I got the Code Red DVD release of Mean Johnny Barrows starring Fred Williamson. Oh, that one has an amazing commentary track where Fred Williamson is so angry with the uh, host Well, of okay, it. I listened to that commentary while I was doing some chores around the house, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the commentary. I think he, I don't think he's quite as angry as you say. He's a prickly guy, though. He's a proud man. He doesn't like jokes at his expense. Yeah, the guy's trying to make jokes of like, oh, this was a low budget, or et cetera, et cetera, and Fred Williamson is like, no, no, it wasn't. We had like this many days to do it. And it's very good. Fred Williamson also takes great pride in what he was able to do on no resources. Oh, yeah, he does. Absolutely. So like there's an incredible scene in that movie where like Elliot Gould shows up very briefly as a homeless guy, like a a wisecracking street smart homeless guy who gives Fred Williamson some tips. And apparently he was on set basically as long as you see him in the movie (laughs) he comes up in a car he comes out he's in full costume Uh, the cameras are all set up and then he starts launching on this completely improvised monologue and then he leaves and that's basically what you see in the movie that's amazing that's the kind of funny story that you can only hear uh in a commentary like that i also got and i haven't really um haven't really dived into it but uh, a joe sarno double feature abigail leslie is back in town and laura's toys that have a commentary by mr sarno himself So those were uh part of the camp pictures dvd label i think maybe they go under another name oh retro media that's who put it out because that was like part of a big umbrella and those are dvds i always keep an out eye out for when i'm looking at like spines and stuff like that oftentimes i'll go straight to the horror section stuff because that's where you get kind of like the low budget things that fall through the crack or local films but like just to go through the example and then my methodology of why i picked some of the movies that i did two of them are screaming dead and shockorama these are two films directed by brett piper who does like visual effects stuff these will probably never be put out on blu-ray because they're digital movies Oh, maybe like a Vinegar Syndrome sub-label, but Vinegar Syndrome put out his like 
what was it called? We played it at our film festival. It's like Battle of the Planets or something like that. Like he's a stop motion guy. So I love that kind of stuff. And these were easy buys. I also picked up a movie called Chronicle of the Raven. And the reason for that is it's supposedly not very good, but it was co-directed by the Argentinian filmmaker who did all of those zombie movies that I love, Plaga Zombie Mutant Zone. And it's notable for co-starring Faye Dunaway. And I was shocked when I turned the DVD around to find it has a commentary with the two stars gina phillips and faye dunaway on this dvd this is another movie i think it popped up on youtube recently not streaming anywhere else i picked up one that is was released on blu-ray but i think it went out of print really fast faust love of the dam a brian usna film for some reason has never gotten a transfer uh, that's easily available and then i picked up two films that i only realized afterwards were Related. The first one is Killers. I'm showing uh, Will on the webcam right now. It has a real like shiny cover, which will obviously drag get my attention. What's fascinating about this one is this is a movie that was done early on by one of the main players in the asylum. So he like directed, he wrote it, he was very dedicated, and it has a long gap, I think 10 year gap sequel to it. And that always, you know, uh, gets my interest going because I'm like, oh, 10 year gap sequel. Why would they make that? Who, who wants that? So I had to pick it up. And probably the most one that I will watch and go, why did I get this? This is bad is the Headless Horseman. And this is a sci-fi movie and a new image production directed by the, the guy that did the Sharknado films. All stuff that I'd be like, why, why would I want this? But at the bottom, it said the final cut. And I went, what does that mean? Is that the final cut? Like it's the tagline of the film? Is it the final cut? Like Alexander, the final cut? I am fascinated by what that could possibly mean. So I had to pick it up for $4. Also, Chairman of the Board. Oh, Chairman of the Board with Carrot Top. Yes, because I know that has a secret Carrot Top commentary hidden on it. Well, every now and then I'll walk into Justin's apartment and I'll see, you know, the stacks of DVDs and I'll see one and I'll think, okay, well, that can only be here because there's a commentary track on it. Like, <laughs> recently I came in and I saw uh, Paradise City, which stars John Travolta and Bruce Willis, like dementia-addled Bruce Willis. And I thought, this is the most abject shit thing I've ever seen in this apartment. Like, that has to have a commentary. And you pointed out to me that it's actually directed by Charles Russell, who directed such films as The Mask and The Blob remake. And not only does it have a commentary, but it has a whole documentary where the master talks about his craft. You know, a full-on Charles Russell masterclass. And I thought, oh man that sounds that sounds really good maybe i'll get paradise city on blu-ray and you know what it was good because i did watch it i was like ah this was worth it and what's even more enticing about that is will was looking he's like oh it's on amazon and i went uh uh, uh. that is the canadian version which does not have any of those special features <laughs> look at all this like useless information in my mind taking up like that I could see chairman of the board and go, wait, there's a carrot top commentary on that. That's in. <laughs> I, I just, that came off the top of the dome. <laughs> Are there any like DVDs that you always have like an eye out for that? You're like, Oh, I wish I could I'd stumble onto this or even a Blu-ray. Cause I feel when I was a kid and I would go to like HMV or music world, there were always some that I looked for that I had seen like a review on DVD talk. And I was like, Oh, I wish I could finally see this one. I remember for a long time I was looking for flesh and blood, the Paul Verhoeven film. And, and finally, I, I, I eventually got it. And it's gotten to the point that it has happened once that I went, oh, finally, I got this DVD I've been looking for all this time. And I got home and went, I already have this. <laughs> like, uh. The memory of searching for it 
was more present in my mind than the memory of actually getting it. Yeah, one that I'm always looking for is, or a brand that I'm always looking for is Something Weird Video, the ones that they put out through Image Entertainment. I mean, I have a big collection of those, but I'm always looking for more. And sometimes they go for like $150, $200, something like that. I'm so surprised because they were very available. Like they, you could get them in like Tower Records and stuff like that. Frank Helen Halata was very proud about saying that they got them in retail stores. So you'd think they, there'd be a lot of them floating around. Any of the ones that have commentary tracks by David F. Friedman, who is the producer on so many of those old exploitation films. like So good. I remember renting uh, the adult version of Jekyll and Hyde from Bay Street Video as a kid, not as a kid, as a young man, and listening to a bit of his commentary. And if I find that one or The Erotic Adventures of Zorro, another one that I want that I haven't been able to find, it's a double feature, but one of the movies is Satan's Bed, which is that Michael Findlay movie that also has... Like he bought a movie that had Yoko Ono in it and spliced it into one of his movies. So uh, I would I would like that I one. I remember picking up the I think it was a something weird release of the two Roberta Finley like roughies that she starred in. Uh, take me while when I'm naked or take me while I'm naked. I, I actually okay. I'm glad you say that because I actually got that one recently. I found that oh, one. Oh really? I found that one at uh uh take yeah take me naked. I found it at BMV on Edward Street. I picked that one up at the Queen Street video closing sale. <laughs> that was the one, probably $2 too, that they're just getting rid of them. One of the ones that I've never actually sat down and watched, but I've always been interested in because I want to hear, I think David F. Friedman does a commentary on it, is the porn version of... Uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Please Don't Eat My Mother. I want that one too, and I've also never seen it. <laughs> I'm surprised that you don't. I would have thought that you would have had all of these something weird uh, DVDs. Well, I have a lot of them, but they put a fuck ton of them out. I mean, it's insane. It's insane how much they put out. I mean, basically any print that they found, they're like, whoop, no copyright uh, thing on there. Let's put it out. This is something we didn't really talk about in something weird. Is that like, you know, they were technically a gray market company because they didn't have permissions for a lot of this stuff. And like, they only made the deal with David F. Freeman when he called them up and was like, hey, you're putting my movies out without my permission. And they were like, ah, we'll pay you. And he's like, okay, tell me more. I mean, yeah. I mean, a ton of the movies they put out are basically abandoned films, you know? Yeah, like Bat Pussy. Bat Pussy is a movie like nobody knows who owns that. They just went to like laboratories that held on to these prints that were closing and other you know a ton of the movies they put out would have just been bound for the dumpster please don't eat my mother is one that i'm very surprised that like agfa hasn't repackaged and put out there because you just say porn version of little shop of horrors and like that's an instant oh i'm interested i want to see what this is well folks there there you have it dvd it's yours to discover Fox, dvd and video <laughs>